Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Hey, Reasonable Doubts fans, this is Jeremy. Not too long ago, Luke Galen and I got an opportunity to speak at the CFI on-campus group at Grand Valley State University for their Carl Sagan Day celebration. The doctor professor is going to kick things off with his talk on Carl Sagan's Baloney Detection Kit, a set of critical thinking skills that are useful in sorting out real science from pseudoscience. Following Luke's talk... I'll be highlighting some of my favorite passages out of Sagan's Gifford Lectures on Natural Theology. As always, please leave any feedback, questions, comments at doubtcast.org, and we'll be back soon with a brand new episode of Reasonable Doubts. I was going to come in character and wear my blazer and do my Carl Sagan voice, but then, you know, Jeremy does a better Carl Sagan voice than I do, so I thought we could have competing Carls, but, you know. Who are you? I am the real Carl Sagan. There must be a parallel universe. We're, I'm going to talk about the um, the aspect of Carl Sagan that has to do with his critical thinking and kind of his outreach to people and as far as teaching the process of baloney detection. So if any of you have read... Some of his works like The Demon Haunted World, or uh, some of this is actually in his, even his novel Contact, which they made a movie about where the, uh, the um, character of uh, Jodie Foster, Foster plays uh, Arroway, uh, has a lot of those critical thinking sentiments too when she's talking to you know the guy who's the spiritual Matthew McConaughey, which is odd casting. But um, I would recommend that everybody reads this book because basically it's a dissection of what can happen in a society that doesn't use the principles of, of baloney detection or, or critical thinking. And since I'm in psychology, I actually use this in some of my classes when we talk about uh, things like uh, in the psychology field that have resulted from a lack of critical thinking. Some of you might be familiar with the repressed memory scandals from the 80s through the 90s. They kind of peaked uh, and then went down. But um, the, these are examples um, where uh, the therapeutic community was actually involved in promoting uh, false allegations of sexual or childhood abuse because they weren't thinking critically enough to to examine you know with more skeptical eye the stories of people about recovering memories of abuse through things like hypnosis or really unreliable methods. Uh, but he also compares those to uh, people in the UFO abduction community that say that they were you know sucked up to aliens and chips implanted and stuff, and the uh, and the satanic ritual abuse cult, which was also like a wave of hysteria that spread where there was cults like eating and cooking babies and things like that, and they couldn't find any evidence of this. So um, he compares all those because there's commonalities to, those, uh, to the, all those uh, failures of critical thinking. And one of them is that the, you have a pool of people that um, are, submit themselves as having problems, and these are often very vague problems. They might have a sense of depression or anxiety, but um, they don't really fit any specific category. And the therapists also play a role in that they specialize in collecting specific stories and making them fit their own particular mold. So like, you know, if somebody says, oh, I got anxiety and I have memory loss, oh, you're a UFO abductee. Really? Yeah, it happens in all my abductees, the same thing. So there was like a perfect marriage of, of vague patient complaints, and, you know, who doesn't have uh, some sort of complaints, with the, um, the therapist willing to sort of bend reality to fit their own uh, mold there. And then uh, there was uh, cultural factors like... Uh, books and meetings and tapes and seminars you could go to that says, you know, people have been abducted by aliens and here's how, I, how to identify these people. And so uh, at a cultural level, there was like a hysteria, basically, kind of like a Salem witch trial thing where everybody was on board with this. So what Sagan talks about in his book is how all these different types of failures of critical thinking related to like a hysterical wave of pseudo cases. I'll go through the examples, but let me give you his tools first for detecting baloney, and then we'll talk about how they can fail in specific cases. I'll see how if you guys can detect some of these errors, too. If you're into the critical thinking, skeptical type thought already, these are basics, you know, and they're pretty elementary, but you have to have multiple confirmation of facts. In any, in any given case, you have to have not more than just one observer, uh, replication of a study and that kind of thing, and that you have to have, when you're explaining it, you have to have different points of view. 
you can't just constrain it to one person's hypothesis and, and go with that. Um, there also has to be a competition between hypotheses. Uh, he gives it a Darwinian flavor where the best hypothesis that can account for the most data wins. And then um, also at a personal level, we this is what science sort of drags us away from our own preferred ways of thinking if the data don't confirm those. But many people try to stick with a hypothesis just because they like it. And he gives some examples of scientists that like uh, try as they might to confirm their previous theories, they've been forced to give them up uh, because the data just don't support them. You have to have a falsifiable hypothesis. Whatever the phenomena is, you have to be able to explain it in a way that it could be proven false if, in fact, you're wrong. I'll give some examples of that one, too, because that's a biggie. Uh, and also the principle of, uh, does anybody uh, recognize Occam's razor? So the simplest theory that explains the data is preferred over a complex theory that makes the same predictions. Uh, you don't add on. That's the razor there. You don't. You cut out the stuff that's the excess, window dressing, that doesn't do anything. Also an emphasis on not just being an armchair speculator, but to actually measure and quantify things is necessary to detect baloney. Uh, and that you, you don't just sit there and think of uh, like the philosophers that called themselves scientists back before the scientific method. They just sat there and theorized about how many angels could dance on the head of a pin without actually measuring, in fact, what the weight of an angel would be. Also, if you have a bunch of explanations that require a complex chain, it's only as strong as its weakest link. You can have all these things that are supportive, but if there's one part that falls apart, I, I was looking for the cartoon, but I couldn't find it where the scientist has like a, it's like a far side. He has the whole board full of equations, and then he says in a little gap there, then a miracle occurs, and then there's more equations. You can't do that. Everything has to, has to work seamlessly. The other great thing about science is it doesn't matter who you are. It's profoundly democratic because you know, whatever authority you happen to carry, if, in fact, your data is wrong or your explanation is wrong, then some little pipsqueak can knock you off. And we've, science has a whole history of people that come up with, you know, who are nobodies, but they come up with these great explanations uh, that actually are supported. So let's talk about some of the big fails here. Let me just mention some examples. Uh, I, I talked about the repressed memory scandal, but this is a massive failure of the, science, the use of science within the therapeutic community people who are therapists. So there was a whole wave like we talked about with the with repressed memory cases spreading through and then all these therapists started confirming each other's theories. But a lot of these therapists didn't have, you know, they were trained in, in therapy and basic sort of um, talk therapy, but they didn't really apply their scientific training to examine these things critically. And so as, as we mentioned a minute ago, they, they often did things without confirming, like, is there any other possible explanation why this person might have these symptoms besides, you know, being abducted by aliens, having, you know, chips implanted, being a member of a satanic cult, or uh, having abuse that is, uh, that occurs, is then repressed and comes back up again years later. This is actually a quote from one of the most popular manuals at the time. It was written by Ellen Bass. It's called The, the Courage to Heal. Uh, this is advice for therapists that she gives. Believe the survivor. If a client is unsure that she was abused but thinks she might have been, work as though she was. So far among the hundreds of women we've talked to and the hundreds more we've heard about, not one has suspected that she might have been abused, explored it, and, de and determined that she wasn't. That's problematic. You know, if you're a therapist, you're supposed to be an advocate for the client, but uh, no cases? Uh, that sounds pretty fishy. Uh, and so what turns out that was the case is that a lot of the uh, people had allegations that were false. It was just based on a vague memory, and the therapist actually unwittingly reinforced, or in some cases wittingly, reinforced false memories. It led to a lot of people being accused of abuse. So that was a massive fail there. The other thing that people are probably most familiar with is falsifiability, and this crosses all the different scientific domains. And again, it's a good thing. It sounds like a bad thing, but you have to be able to make a hypothesis that's risky because it could, in fact, not turn out the way you want it to. Uh, so the, the examples that are, uh, I'll give it a psychology example here of, of what's the punching bag for falsifiability, and that's Freudian type psychoanalysis. If the, if the patient, if Freud says your abuse was caused, you know, by a childhood abuse, that's what's causing your neurosis, the patient would say, I don't remember any abuse, and he would say, that's evidence of repression. This is stupid. Oh, you're in denial now. Okay, fine, I was abused. Now we're getting somewhere. It's, there's no way out of it. If you don't, if you can't have any evidence, that can't be used as evidence that something did occur. Uh, and often Freud, you can't, it was like nailing jello to a wall, essentially. But this also should remind people of the, the more recent uh, intelligent design evolution controversies because intelligent design is really an unfalsifiable theory. Uh, because if you point out something, they, they often refer to things like the eye is so perfect it could only have been 
designed by uh, an intelligent power. And one a Darwinian person would say, well, you know, there's all kinds of evidence of crappy design. Basically, 99% of all species that have ever existed are now extinct. Where's the designer there? Uh, if you point out things that are bad about eyesight or poor design, they say, um, the higher power must have wanted it that way. How do you possibly disprove that? Which features are the ones that are intelligently designed and which ones aren't? So those are examples of big fails for uh, falsifiability. With Occam's razor, as we discussed, this is um, also very robust in that you cut out a lot of parts of the theories that don't do anything. So the, the classic example in astrophysics were the solar systems. They, we had actually heliocentric solar system models from the time of the Greeks that were compared with the uh, Earth-centered system. The way to make them work, if you, you can't really make it out here, but the one with the Earth at the center, uh, the, they would notice that the stars would go around in predictable ways, and he'll probably, if you'll see this in some of the Cosmos episodes, but planets seem to do what we call retrograde motion. They turn back on themselves, and then they keep going. Well, the model was that stars are on like a fixed crystal sphere, and so where Earth is in the middle, and then everything kind of rotates around it in beautiful perfection. How do, why would planets backtrack? They must have smaller spheres that they're attached to, like little wheels that make them like turn back, appear to turn backwards and then go further. Well, you can make it work. That is, you can get calculations to turn out using the, the Earth-centered model, but the Sun-centered model actually takes fewer, it requires fewer calculations to make it work. That is, it's a, it makes the same predictions, but it's more simple. So this, there's a famous quote where, uh, where Napoleon's, uh, he was into science and things like that. Boy, these freshmen get younger every year. <laughs> Napoleon was into science, and he had his, like, his, his, uh, one of his chief astro astronomy guys explain to him what was the latest in Newtonian physics, and the guy gave the, the model of the, the universe, and then Napoleon said, well, where does God fit into this universe? And uh, the Laplace was a scientist. He said, sir, I don't need that hypothesis, or whatever the French version of that is, Napa something. Um, that uh, he basically was saying that, you know, what does it add to have a divine power to say that things rotate around because of gravity in Newtonian physics? Why do you need to say, and then God also helps out too? So that's often given as a classic, like, Occam's razor thing. In psychology and, and medicine, there's also classic failures of baloney detection. One of this was the uh, facilitated communication. So people who weren't verbal or weren't able to communicate or if they had like, uh, if they were nonverbal and had spasticity, the, they thought that there was a little mind in there trapped, like with autism or childhood psychosis, that inside he's really okay. It's just an output problem. And if you steady the hand or the person, like you can see her there, uh, she's sort of guiding his hand on the keyboard. You could then, what happened was they would ask questions like, you know, how do you feel, Johnny? And he would write, write Shakespearean prose, like, you know, verily, I, whatever. Uh, but it also turned ugly, too, because then the kids were starting to type out, you know, daddy abused me and the scary things. You know, stop, stop now. He's, um, but what it turns out now, uh, this, this was magical. As you can see, if you're a parent, you'd really want this to be true. What you thought was, was a hopeless case of your kid being trapped in there for life, now suddenly he, could, uh, he can type things out. How was the way that, that they busted these people out then? What, what intervention would you make to actually determine this was true or not? Well, baloney. Flash question for the kids, but not the facilitator. Yeah, it's a simple blind a very simple blinded experiment of, of just present the, the information to the kid and not let the facilitator hear the question. And if it's really the case that the kid is in there listening, then he should be able to answer it. So what happened is, is that the hypothesis that, the, that he's really in there somewhere and it's just undisclosed literacy is what they called it. The kid's a Shakespeare, but he just can't talk. That hypothesis is, in fact, possible, but... It's, it's not, uh, when you test it, it really doesn't turn out to be the case when you actually use controls, basic level controls in this experiment, you know, to, uh, to have the information blind to the facilitator. But uh, there's actually still institutes that promote facilitated communication. I just checked online for this thing, and there are some places that still use that. They just say something like, yes, it's possible for uh, the facilitator to inadvertently guide the kid, but not in some cases. So they almost admit that it's possible, uh, but they say that there are still valid cases. Now, the other thing is that many uh, uh, baloney detection devices often, as we said before, uh, apply to even scientists themselves. Many scientists don't think that they're full of baloney, but they are, and they'll try to use their own authority. So I gave some examples uh, of people that work, for example, for tobacco industries or uh, coal industries. They're scientists. But they often try to use their authority like, you know, because I'm a scientist, therefore this policy is true. And as we talked about before, uh, the, uh, that you can't use your authority uh, in a scientific debate. 
who you are or how much education you have really doesn't matter. Now, in most cases, it's good that somebody has some authority because they have training, but these things are not true because the source says they're true. They're only true because the evidence would support them or not. Uh, so like abstinence-only sex ed, you know, that was a governmental policy, or uh, the um, having, uh, you know, the president tell you that, that something's the case or not, all those are examples of arguments from authority or appeals to authority. Believe me because I have, you know, I'm the person on the committee. Here's another example in psychology of a massive fail of, for many years of, uh, of baloney detection, and that is the, uh, the theory of refrigerator mothers and autism again. This was based on the work of some psychoanalytically uh, inclined guys like Bruno Bettelheim uh, for many years was undisputed in that what causes autism or childhood psychosis, it's the mother being too cold. That is, he saw in his patients when the kid was autistic and not communicating, he noticed, it's funny, the mother seems sometimes not to have established a warm bond with the child. So obviously, therefore, that's causing the kid to be autistic. And here's a quote from this book. He said, the precipitating factor in infantile autism is the parent's wish that the child should not exist. At its core lies resentment of the degree to which the, they enslave through negation and passivity. The frequent absence of clear positive responses, even to the most devoted efforts, and hence, doubts of whether the efforts are appropriate and the guilt one feels about wishing to be free. So, wow, I mean, any questions? It's beautiful prose. It's also really complicated. You can see that the problem, uh, there are many problems with that, uh, that, you know, even though it sounds plausible and he's an authority, that it's a really excessively complicated like a lot of pseudo-Freudian type psych psychobabble is. And that is the most basic explanation of maybe the mom is in fact, not bonding with a kid because the kid hasn't bonded with her or that there's some predisposing factor and that the mother's personality is a reaction to devastated that the fact that her kid can't bond with her. You know, and this is uh, for decades uh, since, you know, this has peaked in the, like the 50s and 60s, parents were blamed for their kids being autistic because, you know, clearly they're causing it by being detached. Here's another more recent one. EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing for a treatment for trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder. Here the theory is that uh, if somebody has a traumatic memory, and so if you haven't, uh, you've probably seen PTSD with like some Iraq veterans and things like that. They have, they have intrusive memories of the trauma, like if they were bombed or something like that, they can't get their mind off it. They wake up with night sweats. They have uh, exaggerated startle responses where they're always on, on edge. The theory of, of EMDR is that what happens is that the person will be encouraged to recall the memory, however painful, while uh, they pair the recall with certain eye movements or uh, sounds. There's different ways of doing it, but uh, Francine Shapiro developed this because she says that when uh, the memories are stored throughout the brain, which is plausible, and then if you activate different brain areas by having the person looking it up at the different visual quadrants, while the person is recalling the memory, it's more effective than them talking about it. Now here's a little test. Uh, the, the standard treatment for, for PTSD is called exposure therapy, where you just have the person, however hard it is to recall the memory and, and talk them down and basically get it to where it's habituated, where it doesn't freak them out anymore. How could you test and see whether EMDR is in fact works for the reason that they say it works? That is, if, if you need all these eye movement things and the therapist to guide you through these things, how could you ever know whether that in fact her theory is true because she says you know, the reasons that she says it's true? Yeah, this is called a, a dismantling study or an unpacking study. And in fact, you know, the earlier treatments found out that she was, she looked correct, that when people recall memories and the therapist does these sort of eye movement things and then they walk them through it, they were better, but they didn't have the basic condition of have the person recall the memories without the eye movements. And then did it add anything? Nope. It was just, it was window dressing. The, the most that can be said in some of the studies is that it gives the patient something to do while they're talking about, you know, their trauma. It doesn't work for the reason that she said it works. It's just window dressing. All the other movements that are added to it is, you know, the effect doesn't add anything to just dumb old exposure therapy. Uh, and then, like we recalled, that the other part of baloney detection that he discusses with having multiple hypotheses fighting it out is that clearly uh, there's been examples lately where people have constrained hypotheses. That is, if you have everybody that's basically of the same mind in a room thinking they can all be brilliant scientists and you know economists working out problems but if there isn't any dissenting voices if there aren't any people saying ah oh, did you ever think that maybe it could be something different the quality of the decisions really uh, are impaired so groupthink is there's many examples of this one in science and in economics and in politics but 
uh, groupthink is anytime you have people in the room that are all of one mind, and uh, you anybody who says, well, you know, I, I'm of a different opinion, you 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 scoot them out of the room before you start to make decisions. So we can all think of you know economic decisions that were basically bad because Bush was famous, for example, for excluding people that weren't on his weren't on the same page, or uh, disasters like NASA disasters. There's many examples of groupthink where they didn't they excluded engineers who weren't on the same page with everybody else. So this is one uh, what we know from research and actually uh, this, that that with creative group problem solving that the more the more input you get from the beginning, the more, uh, uh, even if the opinion is dissenting, that the quality of the decisions increase, that you need multiple voices. And then, you know, if somebody's wrong, you can then test it, but you need to have a variety of input. So that's another uh, aspect of balloon detection, I think, that is that is useful. So I'll end on an inspirational note here. Boy, he's, he's dressed just like me. But the, uh, let me read a quote from his uh, The Art of Balloon Detection. Finding the occasional st- I'm going to do it in that voice. Finding the occasional straw of truth awash in a great ocean of confusion and bamboozle requires intelligence, vigilance, de- dedication, and courage. But if we don't practice these tough habits of thought, we cannot hope to solve the truly serious problems that face us, and we risk becoming a nation of suckers, up for grabs by the next charlatan who comes along. So that's sort of an uplifting note that we need. This might seem, you know, skepticism has a reputation as being a bad thing, that you're a cranky skeptic, you probably have been interacted with people where you're the one always asking these crazy questions that are, that are dissenting. But this is the optimistic end of things, why we need skeptical voices and we need these baloney detection things. They're not a wet blanket or raining on people's parades. This is the way that we winnow out the crap. And actually, what's left after this is the really good stuff. All right. Uh, my name is Jeremy Bean. I teach... Introduction to Philosophy and Introduction to World Religions at Kendall College, and I work with Luke Galen on the Reasonable Doubts podcast. And my subject uh, today is going to be Carl Sagan's thoughts on religion. Uh, Carl Sagan was, of course, very critical of religion, very critical of belief in God. I think that's one of the remarkable things about the Cosmos series is he actually Uh, stated many of his criticisms of God and actually challenged certain theological positions in the show. Uh, And for something like that, which was broadcast on PBS, which was broadcast around the world, I think the figures are uh, almost a billion people saw the Cosmos series. Uh, That's a pretty remarkable fact about him. Though Carl Sagan was, of course, very critical of religion, he was also had a profound respect for sort of the impulse behind religion, which was to seek out truth, to understand one's place in the universe, and to have that understanding then um, filter into your own life and your own behavior uh, to guide your morals to some degree. So Carl Sagan, again, treated religion with respect, but also part of that respect was being critical of it, not just accepting religious claims on face value, but challenging them, wanting to see them held up uh, to the standards of reason and evidence that we would expect of any other proposition. So before I go into some of his views on religion, though, I want to share something about my own background, my own religious experience, and the way that I think uh, Carl Sagan's writings and, of course, the Cosmos series really had a profound effect on me. So this is my mini-tribute to Carl Sagan. Um, When I was 12 years old, I had one of the most profound experiences of my life. I was uh, in my backyard, swinging in a hammock, and rather bored on a summer day. So bored, in fact, that I pulled out the Bible to actually read it, which I had never done before. And I read the uh, Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, uh, where Jesus teaches uh, about some of his basic teachings on morality. And I was confronted with these uh, very profound ideas, very eloquently said, uh, about how morality is more than just what we do for appearances to impress other people. Uh, It's something about what we believe in our hearts. It's not just enough to not do bad things, uh, but actually controlling your thoughts and your desires play an essential role in, in your moral character. 
as a 12-year-old reading these things, it opened a window to me to uh, a whole new realm of thought. The concerns on the mind of a 12-year-old boy in suburban Illinois tends to be around uh, sports, around television shows, around hanging out with friends. You're typically not thinking about deep questions to what is the meaning of life, how should I live my life, and this encounter with this ancient religious text really showed me that there's there's a whole other realm to uh, there's a whole other dimension to life. There are things that are more important than just my mundane everyday activities, just the amusements that a 12-year-old might surround themselves with. And I think that is uh, the impulse uh, that attracts a lot of people to religion, is that sense that there is something more than just the mundane and that it, it can have a difference and impact in our life. So if you fast forward almost a decade later, when I'm now studying to be a, to be a pastor, to be a theologian, I suddenly was much less content with the religion that I'd been brought up with. I was faced with all sorts of contradictions uh, that seemed to be popping out everywhere in the Bible as I was studying it. I was realizing that so much of uh, what I thought was this quest for truth to understand who we are and how we should live in this world in religion was uh, about the minutia of theology and arming oneself with arguments against some other person who believed something just a little bit different than what I believed. This was all very dissatisfying and eventually encountering the thoughts of atheist philosophers I realized that the, the apologists that I had been reading for Christianity really didn't have uh, the answers to these arguments. And so in great dismay, because my whole life had been built on this and centered around it, uh, all of my friends were Christians, uh, all my family were Christians. With great dismay, I decided I couldn't believe in God anymore. So one of the first things that I did after realizing that for much of my life I had been learning about a fantasy world, what I regarded as a fantasy world, was I decided to try to learn something about the world of reality, the world that I actually lived in. And I came across the uh, Cosmos series in my local library. And on VHS cassette, which I quickly pirated, <laughs> and I watched these videos of Cosmos, and I think as, as a lot of people did, this, this whole world of science really became alive to me. Carl Sagan had such a way of talking about data, uh, talking about evidence, and some very big ideas in science, but making it all flow more like poetry. Uh, the, in fact, his use of poetry and bringing in plenty of metaphors, uh, bringing in stories from religious texts like the Hindu Vedas, really made science come alive. It, it, really, uh, it really spoke to the heart and to the emotions and not just to the mind and the intellect. That was a fragile time in my intellectual development and it would have been very tempting to kind of slide into nihilism, to think that truth was a sham or that morality uh, was just a fiction or that the world was absurd and a joke. But I think what the Cosmos series did for me that in that moment of time was really show quite the opposite. Really, Sagan made me feel at home in a universe that had become much, much larger than I had ever imagined. So I, as many people do, feel a sort of debt of gratitude to somebody who um, decided to popularize this information and did it, so, did it in such an eloquent way that it really did inspire awe in the universe and, and confidence that we could actually know something about it. That we, could, we always must be skeptical, but we can have confidence in our knowledge if it's built on reason, if it's built on evidence. I want to read for you a, a passage from Pale Blue Dot, uh, one of my favorite books of Carl Sagan's. This is one of my favorite passages in it. I'll, I'll do my Carl Sagan impression too, like Luke did, but I'll, I'll save it for the last paragraph. Otherwise, nobody, everybody will be paying attention to the impression, not, not what he's saying. The beginning of Pale Blue Dot, really where he gets the title from that book, is that the Voyager space probe, they, had it, they turned it around as it was leaving our, our solar system and they took some last-minute snapshots of the Earth at a very great distance to where the Earth was no bigger size than a small pale blue dot. 
So this is uh, from that book. He says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you know, everyone you love, everyone you've ever heard of, every human being who was ev- whoever was lived out their lives. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and all those emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless suffering visited on the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged place in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in a great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Carl Sagan always communicated this idea that knowledge of our place in the universe should have an impact on our moral outlook. Knowing that we're, the, we're on this small, pale blue dot uh, says something about uh, the, uh, really the futility of, of a lot of the conflicts that human beings go through. But what's also interesting is that this knowledge of our true place, of our true importance to the universe, also prompts suspicion of certain religious claims. It should, uh, it should make us think more skeptically about them. So I'll read the last paragraph and I'll, I'll do the Carl Sagan impression for this. <clears throat> Usually I kind of have to warm up uh, for it to sound any good, but I'll give it a shot. Take a good long look at it. Stare at the dot for any length of time and then try to convince yourself that God created the whole universe for one of the 10 million or so species of life that inhabit that speck of dust. Now take it a step further. Imagine that everything has been made for just a single shade of that species or gender or ethnic or religious subdivision. If this doesn't strike you as unlikely, pick another dot. Imagine it to be inhabited by a different form of intelligent life. They too cherish the notion of a god who created everything for their benefit. How seriously do you take their claim? Okay, so not quite on fire with Carl Sagan impression tonight, but that was my shot. So religious skepticism, of course. Uh, something about our, our place in the universe should ask us to uh, question religious claims, especially those that treat the earth as kind of a central stage in the cosmic drama. So for the rest of uh, my talk, I want to share some of Carl Sagan's comments from his Gifford lectures. Uh, The Gifford lectures were established by Adam Lord Gifford to promote the study of natural theology. Natural theology are attempts to argue for God or what can we know about God or the divine from just using reason, from just using logic and evidence from the physical world that we live in. And so uh, it was kind of striking for the Gifford Lecture series to invite Carl Sagan, who was an atheist. He was by no means the first atheist to be invited there. But it is quite an honor and a privilege. And uh, while there, he really gave them all he had. Uh, He didn't hold back a bit and really challenged uh, belief in God. But he did so in an incredibly respectful way. These were just common sense objections that I think anybody who thinks seriously seriously about these matters would have to ponder for some time. People wanted to know Carl Sagan's ideas about God. Uh, he was getting asked this all the time in the press or at public lectures, people asking him if he believed in God. And his answer was always, well, what kind of God are you talking about? And in his Gifford lectures, he starts off uh, very much in the same way. He says, now, the range of hypotheses that are seriously covered under the rubric of God is immense. Now, think of all the possibilities, worlds without gods, gods without worlds, gods that are made by pre-existing gods, gods that were always here, gods that never die, gods that do die, gods that die more than once, different degrees of divine intervention in human affairs, zero, one, many prophets, zero, one, many saviors, zero, one, many resurrections, zero, one, many gods. 
and related questions about sacraments, religious mutilation, scarification, baptism, monastic orders, ascetic expectations, the presence or absence of an afterlife, days to eat fish, days to not eat at all. How many, uh, how many afterlives do you have coming to you? Justice in this world or the next or no world in all? Reincarnation, human sacrifice, temple prostitution, jihads, and so forth. There's a grab bag of religious alternatives, and there are clearly more combinations of alternatives than there are religions, even though there are something like a few thousand religions on the planet today. Right off the bat, he's making it very clear that whenever you're asking that question, do you believe in God? You're already approaching that question with an enormous set of assumptions. But he continues on, and uh, he moves on to the subject of natural theology and starts considering proofs for God. He started with a genius stroke. He started, instead of talking about the traditional Western arguments, uh, many of them coming from Thomas Aquinas, to support the existence of God, he actually begins by talking about Hindu proofs for God. And I'll say something in a moment about why I think that was such an interesting move on his part. Uh, but he brings up... Udayana, an 11th century logician who set up uh, arguments for belief in God. And I'll read uh, his, his description here. He says, first, Udayana reasons that all things must have a cause. The world is full of things, and something must have made those things. Secondly, is the argument from atomic combinations. It's quite sophisticated. It says that at the beginning of the creation, atoms had to be bonded with each other to make bigger things. And such a bonding of atoms always requires the activity of a conscious agent. Well, now we know that's false. Or at least we know that there are laws of atomic interaction that determine how atoms bind together. It's a subject called chemistry. Third is an argument from the suspension of the world. The world isn't falling, as is clear by just looking out. We're not hurtling through space, apparently, and therefore something is holding the world up. And that something is God. Well, this is quite a natural view of things. It's connected with the idea that we are stationary at the center of the universe, a misapprehension that all peoples all over the world have had. In fact, we are falling at a terrific rate of speed orbiting around the sun. Fourth is an argument from the existence of human skills, that if someone didn't show us how to do things, we wouldn't know how to do it. I think there's plentiful argument against that. Then there is the existence of authoritative knowledge, separate from human skills. How would we know things that are in, for example, the Vedas, the Hindu holy books, unless God had written them? The idea that humans were able to write the Vedas was difficult for Yudana to accept. Well, this gives a sense of these arguments and shows that there's a pervasive human wish to give a rational explanation for the existence of God or God's and also, I maintain, it demonstrates that these arguments are not always highly successful. Now, what, what I think is the brilliance of this approach is that Carl Sagan had a really good sense for how culturally isolated we could be. That we tend to be pretty myopic and to not think of all the different options that are out there and all the different approaches. By starting off right off the bat, confronting Hindu proofs for God, what I'm guessing, because uh, these lectures were delivered in Scotland, I'm guessing most of the people in the audience there were all white. I'm, I'm guessing a good majority of them were Christians. And it's going to be a little bit shocking to hear arguments for your God being given for another God. Uh, the idea that you can use the same arguments to argue for very different gods should be a little bit startling. Now, not all of those arguments were exactly arguments that have been used to support uh, the God of Christianity and Judaism, but some of them were. And for the ones that weren't, it's far easier to see that these arguments don't add up when other people's gods are concerned. Uh, we, tend to, we rarely tend to use the same standards of evidence to judge our own beliefs that we would use for other people. So this is a humbling idea to be able to see how implausible these other arguments are, but then at the same time, how similar they are to the ones that Westerners typically use. Then he goes into the, to the familiar arguments, the more familiar arguments in the West for believing in God, like the cosmological argument. The cosmological argument is basically the argument that everything has a cause, 
And that chain of causation can't go back into an infinity or it wouldn't rest on anything. Um, you could think of that as uh, imagine an infinite stack of books. Well, what would hold up that infinite stack of books if there was no base, right? It has to be grounded on something or it wouldn't hold up. So the idea is every cause must terminate in some sort of final cause, something that started the whole uh, ball rolling but itself was not caused, and that something is God. To which Carl Sagan has a very simple reply. He says, there are two conflicting hypotheses here, two alternative hypotheses. One is that the universe was always here, and the other is that God was always here. Why is it immediately obvious that one of these is more likely than the other? Or put another way, if we say that God made the universe, isn't it reasonable then to ask who made God? Virtually every child asks this question and is usually shushed by parents and told not to ask embarrassing questions. But how does saying that God made the universe, and never mind asking where God came from, how is that more satisfying than to say that the universe was always here? Also, by the way, if there were an uncaused first cause, that by no means says anything about omnipotence or omniscience or compassion or even monotheism. Aristotle, in fact, deduced several dozen first causes in his theology. So th this is an argument he actually brings up in the Cosmos series. Um, there's this great scene where he's almost kind of floating through a tree. Almost, it's kind of kind of odd when you watch it, with a fog and rays of light shining behind him, and he he makes that statement rather bluntly. If you believe uh, God created the world, then who made God? And he says then science brings us to confront questions, uh, deep questions about the universe that until now have only been asked by religion. But he's pointing out, you know, the basic thing here goes back to what Luke was talking about with Occam's razor. The problem is we have to accept that something exists rather than nothing. And it's really hard to wrap your mind around that. But what is gained by adding on a bunch of extra assumptions? You could just say, well, the universe or matter and energy always existed. What is gained by adding on a bunch of additional assumptions about a, a being who's omnipotent, uh, omnipresent, perfectly morally good? Uh, what is gained by that argument? Carl Sagan is showing us we're really in the same position either way. Answering that question with God doesn't answer it at all. It just pushes it one step back. With the design argument, of course, the argument being that uh, anything of sufficient complexity requires an intelligence to, to design it, Carl Sagan brought up, uh, he said, always, be wa always watch out for the failure of human imagination. Of course, it's amazing this diversity that we see here with life, but Charles Darwin is, was able to explain how a lot of diversity could happen in the biological world and a lot of complexity could arise in the biological world through a very simple process, a, a theory that natural selection that's easy enough for a child to understand. As far as the cosmos is concerned, he said, there is certainly a lot of order in the universe, but there's also a lot of chaos. The centers of galaxies routine, routinely explode. And if there are inhabited worlds and civilizations there, they are destroyed by the millions with each explosion of the galactic nucleus or a quasar that does not sound very much like a god who knows what he or she is doing. It sounds more like an apprentice god who is in over his head. Maybe they started them out on the centers of galaxies and then after a while, once they got some experience, moved them on to more important assignments. He countered the moral argument for God and the argument from religious experience in the same way. I'll read to you his one on, the, on religious experience real quick. So his answer to the argument from religious experience is this. He says, people have had religious experiences, no question about it. They've had them worldwide, and there are some interesting similarities in the religious experience that are had worldwide. They are powerful, emotionally extremely convincing, and they often lead to people, uh, lead to people reforming their lives and doing good works, although the opposite also happens. Now, what about this? Well, I do not mean in any way to object or to, or to deride religious experiences, but the question is, can any such experience provide other than anecdotal evidence of the existence for God? One million UFO cases since 1947, and as of yet, 
as far as we can tell, they do not correspond any of them to visitations to the Earth by spacecraft from elsewhere. Large numbers of people can have experiences that can be profound and moving and still not correspond to anything like an exact sense of external reality. And the same can be said not just about UFOs, but about extrasensory perception, ghosts, leprechauns, and so on. Every culture has things of this sort. That does not mean they all exist. It does not mean that any of them exist. So then concluding that part, he says, so if I run through the arguments, the cosmological argument, the argument from design, the moral argument, and the argument from experience, I must say that the net result is not very impressive. It is very much as if we are seeking a rational justification for something that we otherwise hope will be true. He goes on to make one final argument. He says, it is perfectly possible to imagine that God, not an omnipotent or an omniscient God, just a reasonably competent God, could have made absolutely clear-cut evidence of his existence. And then he talks about why don't religious texts say things like uh, the sun is a star? Or he says, uh, suppose instead the story is don't forget the sun is a star or don't forget Mars is a rusty place with volcanoes. Mars, you know that red star? That's a world. It has volcanoes. It's rusty. There are clouds. There used to be rivers. There aren't any more. You'll understand this later. Trust me. Right now, don't forget it. Or... A body in motion tends to remain in motion. Don't think that bodies have to be moved to keep going. It's just the opposite, really. So later, you'll understand that if you didn't, need, if you didn't have friction, a moving object would just keep on moving. He says, now we can imagine that the patriarchs would be scratching their heads in bewilderment, but after all, it's God telling them, so they would copy it down dutifully. And this would be one of the many mysteries in the holy books that would then go on in the future, go on to the future until we could recognize its truth. Of course, he's kind of joking, he's being playful here, but he ends this by saying, I think this is a serious issue. If we believe, as most of the great theologians hold, that religious truth occurs only when there is a convergence between our knowledge of the natural world and revelation, why is this convergence so feeble when it could easily have been so robust? Now, in some ways, these arguments are nothing new. They're really just the standard objections to many of the standard arguments for God. But what's conspicuously absent from his arguments are name-calling, dehumanizing language, talking about people who believe as being faith heads or idiots or only delusional people believe this or that it's a virus. Carl Sagan, nobody could maintain that he was soft on religion. He definitely confronted what he believed was uh, ignorance or ideas that were not supported by evidence wherever he found them. But he did so in a serious, honest, and respectful way. And it's because of that, I think, that he got invited to the Gifford Lectures to deliver that talk. It's because of that that he has so many people who deeply respect him and paid attention to what he said even people who disagreed with his views on religion. There's this notion today that in order to sell books or to get skepticism out into the mainstream, you need to shock. You need to bash people over the head with it. But again, Cosmos was seen by uh, a billion people worldwide in that series. Again, he said things. There's a a great part in episode, uh, what was it, The Backbone of Night. I don't know if you guys watched that one yet or if you're going to watch it later tonight. But he draws such a clear line between mysticism and science that it's it's startling to me that that was ever led on television, that anybody ever allowed that to get on the television. At one part, he says, okay, if you're confronted with different gods fighting over the same territory, you might conclude that since they can't both be right, that one was made up by the priests. Uh, but if one, why not both? That sort of thing was on public television in the early 80s. The the fundamentalists, of course, called him Carl Pagan and mocked him. uh, But really, it was was to their own detriment because the public had such a large respect for Sagan in general. So I think there's an important lesson to be learned there about how to approach these. You can honestly criticize and challenge beliefs, but you can do so in a humble and respectful way. 
And again, I think the reason why Carl Sagan did that is because he had respect for the impulse behind religion. He had a respect for those seeking truth, seeking deeper meaning, and wanting to live in the light of those, even if he didn't always accept religious beliefs. So I'll end with a couple final quotes from the Gifford Lectures. He says, The word religion comes from Latin for binding together, to connect that which has been sundered apart. It's a very interesting concept. And in this sense of seeking the deepest interrelations among things that superficially appear to have been sundered, the objectives of religion and science, I believe, are identical or very nearly so. But the question has to do with the reliability of the truths claimed by these two fields and the methods of approach. To him, that was the difference. What is your method of acquiring truth? How reliable is it? Finally, he says, I believe it is true that Humility is the only just response in in a confrontation with the universe, but not a humility that prevents us from seeking the nature of the universe that we are admiring. If we seek that nature, then love can be informed by truth instead of being based on ignorance or self-deception. If a creator God exists, would he or she or it or whatever the appropriate pronoun is prefer a kind of sodden blockhead who worships while understanding nothing? Or would he prefer us to admire the real universe in all of its intricacy? I would suggest that science is, at least in part, informed worship. My deeply held belief is that if a god of anything like the traditional sort exists, then our curiosity and intelligence are provided by such a god. We would be unappreciative of those gifts if we suppressed our passion to explore the universe and ourselves. On the other hand, if a traditional god does not exist, then our curiosity and our intelligence are the essential tools for managing our survival in an extremely dangerous time. In either case, the enterprise of knowledge is consistent surely with science, and it should be with religion, and it is essential for the welfare of the human species. Thank you. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.